You are listening to Arrive by The Cycling Podcast, supported by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Lionel, where are we? Where are you? Well, I'm in the Cycling Podcast Hertfordshire HQ, feeling pretty chipper this Sunday early evening. How about you? I'm not feeling too good. I feel like I've been on Remco Avonapool's wheel for the last six hours. I've got an absolute all category cold, absolute stinker. Oh, going to be fit for the Giro. I'll, t- the Giro? I'll certainly be fit for the Giro. Remco Avonapool certainly looks like he's going to be very fit for the Giro, does he not? He certainly does. He certainly does. I mean, that's what will happen to you, Daniel, if you sit in rainy spray on somebody's back wheel for, well, it didn't rain for the whole day, did it? But it started raining for... The culmination of Liège Baston Liège this afternoon could have made it very tricky, but didn't really. It reminded me, I mean, not that Remco Evenepoel said in advance what he was going to do, but the way it turned out, it was uh, it was like a boxer who said that they would win with one knockout punch in sort of the ninth round, something like that. And everyone knew it was coming and no one was able to do anything about it. Yeah, there's a history of of such pronouncements in this race, of course. Liege Baston Liege, it was famously Frank, Frank Vandenbroeke in 1999. He named the house number out which he was going to attack on the Côte de Saint-Nicolas. And so he did. I think he got the house slightly wrong, though, actually. I think um, it was a, <laughs> three or four doors down. And it was outside Maureen's house rather than Doris's house that he attacked. But um, he was more or less true to his word. But it was not the race. It was not the day we expected, was it? And I don't know whether before we have your monologue of the monuments, we just want to talk about our respective senses of disappointment and deflation Mm. upon hearing just, well, in my case, minutes before I tuned in, minutes before the TV broadcast started, and I think that was midday more or less, I found out that Tally Pogacar had crashed and was out of the race. And it was a real sense of deflation. And, well, deflation being the operative word because we have subsequently learned that the crash was caused by Mikel Honoré, the EF Education Easy Post rider, suffering a double puncture. This will no doubt... There has been a bit of talk in this classic season about tubeless tyres and blowouts and so on and so forth. What's safer? And the, it was a, a double blowout of some sort. Now, I'm not uh, I'm not familiar with the tyres that EF Education first use, um, what system they use usually and what they were using today. However, that sounded curious to me. A double blowout is what I heard. Well, apparently, Pogacar also had a puncture at the same time, raising speculation that maybe they hit the same hole. I mean, this is heavily into speculation territory. We may well find out more by the time we record our regular episode midweek. But as we as we speak, what we do know is that Pogacar is in the hospital in Genk, where he is having an operation on fractures in his wrist, his left wrist. And, well, he could be off the bike for a little while uh, I mean, I'm mean, assuming he was going to take a break anyway before rebuilding for the Tour de France, but not the way he would want to have ended his spring. And like you say, yeah, it was a real uh, deflation because from that moment on, it did feel like 
the outcome of the race was uh, well it was kind of set in stone I mean I at one point rather facetiously thought that we could perhaps have played last year's episode of Arrive just with some rain sound effects on the top you know just to sum up the slight difference because really it played out in a very similar way shorts each of us wearing (laughs) slightly more transparent I was worried that was my main concern for Remco Evenepoel in the last (laughs) 30 kilometers having done many an interview with riders over the years um, in slightly more transparent shorts than they would like (laughs) in such weather conditions I was looking at those white shorts and thinking oh Remco I don't know I don't know if he he probably had time to um, to pull off to the side of the road and and change into some tracksuit bottoms yeah, um, for the podium of, ceremony. Yeah, yeah, white shorts to match his white rainbow jersey. Of course, I mean, looks looks fantastic in the dry. It looks less good in the wet. It was slightly grey uh, by the, by the end of the race, wasn't it? But anyway, the the monologue of the monument. I mean. Where do we start? Well, we'll start with this 11-man break that got away early in the race, very early, really. Some interesting names in it, weren't there? I mean, Simone Velasco, man of the day, really. Uh, we'll talk about why a little bit later on. He was in there for Astana. Jason Osborne of Alpecin de Koenig, Olympic silver medalist in the rowing in Tokyo in 2021, the 2020 Olympics, but in 2021, then turned into an e-sports rider and now in the break in a monument. Uh, quite a transformation. There was Matisse Lebert of Arkea Samsic. We've seen him up the road a fair bit this spring. Lars Vandenberg of Group Armour FDJ, likewise. Paul Auzelin of Total Energies. Georg Zimmerman of Antimarche. He was in the break for over 160 kilometres at Flesh Wallone on Wednesday, up the road again. And then uh, making up the rest of the break with the likes of Johan Mians, who was also in the break on Wednesday. Alexander Balmer of Jaco. Ruben Apes of Flanders. Balois, Hector Caratero of Kern Pharma and Frederic Devens of Uno X. And as you say, Daniel, the first big news of the day was that Pogacar and Honoré crashed. Pogacar pulled out of the race. Of course, the joint pre-race favourite after winning Amstel and Flesh Wallone in recent days. The break never really got a long way up as we would have anticipated four minutes or so, I think, at its maximum. And Sudal Quickstep really had things under control pretty well all day, didn't they? We'll talk about how impressive they were. The race really exploded. Uh, the Cote de Juan, 85 kilometres to go. Jan Tratnik of Jumbo Visma attacked. Now, Jumbo Visma had a pretty suboptimal morning because Sam Oman and Tosh van der Sander were unable to start, both sent home with COVID. But Tratnik's attack prompted uh, Valentin Madouas of Group Arm FDJ and Magnus Sheffield to react. But Tratnik was unstoppable, wasn't he? He rode up to the break. It took him 20 kilometres to get across to the break. Really impressive stuff. And then he started dropping the riders one by one until it was just him and Simone Velasco of Astana. But as the, the race was coming to its conclusion and everything was homing in on Laredoux, wasn't it? We're anticipating Remco Evenepoel attacking at some point. Uh, he left it later than I had thought he might. I thought he might go a bit earlier. We'll, we'll discuss that. But when he went, slightly different run to last year because the Cote de Forge was back in the course. Uh, it's a horrible climb, that actually, from my memory of riding the Sportive because it's quite a main road, but it's steep, draggy, unpleasant. There was a further climb immediately after uh, Côte de la Redoute. There was the new climb, the Côte de Cornemont, which is an unclassified climb. 
um, wasn't didn't really appear on the on the maps, but it was well, talked about in great detail by you know various learned pundits in the run up to the race. They said they would make a difference, and that sure enough was where Remco Evenepoel actually unhinged Tom Pidcock, wasn't it? That's right. Well, it was Pidcock who latched onto the wheel and looked like those two were going to go for it together. But Pidcock, uh, I think, sat up. I mean, we'll discuss that a little bit. He said afterwards that uh, he decided that he was either going to get ridden off Remco's wheel and then might get swallowed up and, and, and blow up, uh, decided to kind of ride a bit more conservatively and go again for second place on the podium. As it turned out, that was the perfect strategy because that's what's happened. But there was this moment, wasn't there, with Evanapool and Pidcock, two Trek riders chasing. They were both uh, very prominent on the Mur de Hui, weren't they? Matthias Gilmoza and Giulio Ciccone. And then really it was kind of a race for the podium places after that wasn't it ben healy again very active got away pidcock ben healy santiago buitrago came into the finish straight uh, to contest the two remaining places on the podium pidcock got it buitrago third ben healy fourth but remco evenepoel the first rider to win liege baston liege in the rainbow jersey since moreno argentine back in 1987 back-to-back wins for evenepoel at liege Going of course for- he would be the first person since Argentina to score three in a row were he to win next year as well. Indeed. But the thing that was notable, I think all the top four are 23 years old. I was going to say, who's the oldest? Lionel, oh, oh by four. birthday. It I think is. actually Healy's only 22. It's so. the oldest in the top four is Tom Pidcock. July 99, is it? 99, oh. yeah. Ancient, absolutely ancient. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Well, what did you make of it, Daniel? I mean, it was once Pogacar was out and we were denied this kind of humdinger of a head-to-head battle, I think it kind of reverted to type a little bit and everyone's just sort of sleptwalked to the obvious. I know that's an armchair pundit's um, point of view, but it was a little bit deflating, not just that we were denied that battle, but the way that really Evenepoel was pretty much unopposed. Yeah, there's an, a sense of inevitability about Tade Pogacar and sort of fatality about Tade Pogacar and Remco Evenepoel's victories. Um, with Evenepoel, the difference I would say is that well, Pogacar to me does everything that other riders do, but he does them to a higher level with Remco Evenepoel and I've said this before about Mathieu van der Poel at times it looks as though he's practicing um, a different sport it looks as though he's doing a different sport in the sense that it is we have often used the phrase haven't we sort of computer game cycling um, and it literally looks as though someone has just pressed the sort of turbo button I personally line I, I mean there's a lot of this is laden with recency bias uh, the the recency of the last three hours but I found myself doubting whether whether Tadej Pogacar could have lived with Remco Evenepoel today and, and that was also influenced by a lot of the hype I don't know how much you've read line or how much you heard in the last two or three days 
Ruiz and I'd sort of done a bit of a deep dive through or into Remco Strava files, the ones that he's uploaded in the last few days when he's been in Tenerife and just looking at some of the some of the numbers he's been producing in training and uh, listening to or reading quotes from people like the coaches that have been or the coach that's been in Tenerife and teammates and it, 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 it all made for quite a sort of intimidating backdrop to Liege Bastogne yesterday when I when I was thinking about watching the race this afternoon I did already this morning find myself thinking wow Remco might just come and do what he did at Liege last year and also what he did at the world championship when Pogacar let's face it was was nowhere it's just amazing just how cohesive coherent and coordinated Sudal Quickstep looked with Evenepoel dropped back into that team. I mean, they really rode like the Sudal Quickstep that Patrick Lefebvre would demand them to be. They had a plan, you know, um, even in the early part of the race, they were um, they were riding very, very strongly, weren't they? Maro Schmidt, you know, a very good climber in his own right, did a load of work in the first half of the race and, uh, you know, sat up quite dramatically with 100 kilometres to go. And I mean, that was just indicative. That really revealed um, how in control Sudal Quickstep were of their own kind of plan. And then after that, well, Louis Viveka was very, very impressive. I mean, dropped, got back, dropped, got back. Julian Alaphilippe, for a rider of his stature, his uh, kind of, you know, Palmares, his former world champion, of course. Um, you know, he's been under the cosh a little bit from Lefebvre for underperformance. But, you know, it's not easy for a rider of that stature to park his ego to that extent and ride so selflessly for a younger, more dynamic looking teammate at the moment. And uh, he did that brilliantly. And uh, Van Wilder as well, you know, also impressive. And uh, they were, well, they dropped Remco off where he needed to be dropped off and Evenepoel did the rest. And like you say, Daniel, um, it was just uh, slightly disappointing that there wasn't anyone that could live with him uh, you know, longer than, you know, a kilometre or so or a kilometre or two. But the question is, could Pogacar have done so anyway? I'm not so sure. I mean, again, the difference, Evenepoel has, uh, you know, done a lot of training, but, you know, race freshness, Pogacar coming to the end of a really long block of racing where he's been on it every time. Um, it's just a shame we didn't get to see it. Evenepoel did talk in the build-up about how good he has been Coming down from altitude, you know, he did that at San Sebastian last year and I think maybe the year before as well. So he didn't seem to have any doubts. Um, I think Eddie Merckx even was sort of sarcastic having heard Remco talk, was it yesterday or the day before, very, very confidently about his own form, say that he was 100, if not 105%. Lakeep this morning did a sort of vox pops of pundits, former greats, um, asked them who was going to win. Merckx actually of about 15 was the only person who picked Remco which surprised me and he sort of raised an eyebrow in response to the question he said well Remco says he's at 105% then of course he's going to win but he was he was extremely um, confident about that well as you know Daniel the cycling podcast is a speculation free zone but in our 1101 cappuccino uh, that went out on Friday I did pose the question who will win me at men's Liège Bastogne Liège today Pogacar our listeners said those who responded anyway 64% Remco Evenepoel 16% someone else 21% so um well I must admit I wasn't surprised by the result of that poll given what we've seen but uh, well it didn't work out that way at all 
No, and just thinking about the Sunil Quickstep and the way they rode today, it did look it looked like a different team today compared to what we've seen um, in the Cobble Classics when they have where they have been very much in the shadows. And it was a different you know different personnel, and they'd brought in the boys from that Tenerife training camp. And Van Wilder, as you said, was very impressive for Vecca. A lot of the well, it was the nucleus of the team that won the Vuelta last year with Remco Evenepoel. And I mentioned earlier in the week in the regular episode we did last week that Patrick Lefebvre had appeared on a French podcast, the RMC podcast, and he had talked about how he always divides the the season into three sort of tranches or trimesters, I suppose, you know, three-month blocks. Um, The first being up until Liège, the second being from Liège until the end of the Tour de France, and then the third one being sort of finishing at the end of the the Tour de France. So he wasn't drawing any conclusion, so he said, until after Liège. And if you look now at the number of races that they've won, it's about 20, I think, now, and the fact they've won a monument, it doesn't look like a bad spring at all. And it's the same story as last year, isn't it? We talked about that as well the other day, that Remco had saved their spring last year as well. The difference being that a good number of those riders will also join Evenepoel in the Giro team, we expect. So bodes pretty well for Sudal Quickstep and how quickly everything changes in cycling. Lionel, just a final point on Tade Pogacar, because we'll probably be talking about some of the um, other players in the next part. But Pogacar, he's fractured his, his scaphoid in English. That's and right. he's, he's had an operation on that today. Um Obviously, he was going to have a, a break now. Anyway, um, he wasn't going to. He's not due to ride until the Tour of Slovenia, I don't think. But were he to be looking for any encouragement about recovery from that kind of injury, uh, Roberto Vizentini in 1986 won the Giro with a, well a scaffold that was broken at the start of the race. He turned up to the the start of the Giro with his right arm I believe or right wrist in plaster and he went on to win that Giro. Bad news being that Vicentini also broke his scaffold the following year when to his mind he was betrayed by Stephen Roach and well he went slightly mad didn't he over the last two or three days of the race and he crashed out in the stage to Pila and he was really never the same again was he poor old Roberto Vicentini. So in summary, it could go either way for Pogacar. It could go either way. This is why we never speculate. <laughs> Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Lionel, talking of Belgian, uh, Javi Taimon, um, feeding, feed zones, nutrition, did you hear Remco in his post-race interview say that the team nutritionist, I think is a, a woman, has told him that he's allowed chips tonight, he's allowed some fruit tonight? Well, I should think so too. I mean, a, a plate of chips isn't going to do him too much damage, is it, on, on that form? Um, no, I mean, I said earlier he could, have, he could have stopped to change his cuisine, his bib shorts. Um, he probably could have stopped for a punnet of chips Maybe that's what you get in, in Liège, a punnet. Probably not. Um, I thought he, re- I mean, he rode the last 
20 kilometers so carefully and where he, he had a couple of nervous moments didn't he there was one moment where he nearly slid out on a right hand corner but he, he sort of looked as though he was I don't know carrying a chai latte in his right hand and um he, he, he doing his best not to spill a single drop I mean he was in, <laughs> he was incredibly careful wasn't he on some of those corners which puts yeah. his winning margin in even sort of starker perspective really um, to win by well he only won by one minute and six seconds but um, it was well it went out very quickly to one minute one and a half minutes didn't it mm-hmm. and um, it was as we've already said uh, it looked very much a foregone conclusion as soon as he did get away and as we also said one, there was a moment on Larry Duke where I, I just wondered whether he wasn't feeling as good as he had hoped because I was expecting the attack to come sooner. We haven't heard what he said in the press conference. He's probably been asked by someone whether the plans changed as a result of Pogacar crashing. Um, I'd be curious to, to hear the response to that question. It, it may well have been, as we talked in our episode in the week, it may well have been that Pogacar would have attempted to be quicker to the draw. But once Pogacar was not a factor, really it was Evenepoel's decision to make, wasn't it, when to go, especially with the pace that Sudal Quickstep was setting. Um, the thing about that run-in and, and the way that he rode so carefully is that it is quite de- uh, quite treacherous. You know, the, the surface changes a lot. That downhill section, you know, all covered over with trees roads are wet you know he's obviously got one eye on the Giro d'Italia so he probably had that in mind get a big enough advantage early on when he still had the 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 uphill meters um to to open up that advantage I say every year but since riding the sportive the the bit that really um surprises me every year is just how hard and nasty the section after the Rochelle Faucon climb is that where it transition to that concrete road there's absolutely no life in that surface at all it's absolutely horrible to, uh, I imagine to chase on and uh, that probably you know gave him uh, well he had the simple job didn't he just had to keep going and and hold that advantage and behind while well, they were really up against it but uh, I mentioned Tom Pidcock there second today third at Amstel Gold last week he said afterwards that uh, he actually made the decision not to get blown away by Evenepoel too far out and then perhaps risk his chance of finishing on the podium but actually to consolidate he obviously realized he wasn't going to be a match for Evenepoel today but he said he was very happy with second place and uh, he thinks that these races meaning Amstel Flesh Wallone and Liège Bastogne Liège suit him better than the cobbled classics so uh, he is building towards uh, winning something like this I think yeah I th- I thought for a moment we'd find ourselves or I would find myself in this podcast talking about how maybe, maybe there's just a hint of an issue with Tom Pidcock uh, beyond sort of six hours, beyond 250 kilometres, just because of the way he suffered at the end of Flanders, really blew up at the end of Flanders. I think it was a feeding issue there. But, and uh, I'm still, he didn't finish as strongly as Ben Healy. However, um, it looked now with hindsight as though he rode quite smartly and relatively conservatively um i mean he doesn't currently have the or certainly at the moment in this arden classics campaign he hasn't had the same punch as you know the aliens as pogacar and Avonapol, but it's been a pretty good week for him hasn't it notwithstanding as we talked about on wednesday he was pretty disappointed after flesh well on yeah and i also thought ineos grenadiers rode really well didn't they i mean um talking of people you know 
coming back unexpectedly. Lawrence de Ploos did that at least once. I saw, you know, Magnus Sheffield was the one to react when Jan Tratnik um, went up the road. Pavel Sivakov was marking moves and keeping it all together. And, and they got a podium position out of it. I think they'll be pretty satisfied with that as a team. And likewise, you know, Bahrain victorious. Santiago Buitrago, great ride for him when you consider, you know, how far the pe- down the pecking order in Bahrain victorious he might have been this morning. You know, they've got Mate Mohoric, who's not had the best of springs, but he's been there or thereabouts. Uh, Peo Belbao is a, a decent climber. Mikel Lando, we were talking about as being a real threat for today after the way he rode on the Murdehui in midweek. But it was uh, Buitrago who went to the finish. And then Ben Healy. Sorry. Yeah. Just on, on Butrago, um, I haven't read anything, I haven't heard anything yet about what Bahrain's strategy is going to be for the Giro and what their what, what their hierarchy is going to be. But they've got a lot of options at the Giro. And Butrago, I mean, he won a stage last year in Lavarone. He was just outside the top 10 on GC. And they've got, you know, Caruso, former podium finisher in the Giro. They've got Jack Haig, who's penciled in to go to the Giro. Got Gino Maida is penciled in to go to the Giro. Um, they are potentially going to have a really strong team. But Butrago is very much an, an up-and-coming I mean, we mentioned his age, um, younger than Pidcock even. He's, I mean, we've said it a few times, uh, of the sort of what at first appeared a bit of a vacuum after the golden generation of Colombians. He is the standout fledgling sort of heir to those, to the Urans, to the Quintanas, to the, you know, dare I say it, Superman Lopez. Yeah, and I mean, Ben Healy is uh, turning himself into quite something, isn't he? What a couple of weeks it's been second at Brabantse Pale second at Amstel Gold Race and now fourth at Liège Baston Liège and a fourth place that he really engineered for himself didn't he the race had gone a bit you know the the next group was up the road but he um, took matters into his own hand and uh, and and put in the effort to get himself back into the position where he you know he might have got himself on the podium legs perhaps just went from him in the finishing straight but he'd done a heck of a lot to get himself into that position in the first place so really impressive ride again another rider who uh, you know not exactly got a sort of you know, pull down menu of experience in his uh, in his brain or in his legs with with races of this length and and this difficulty, but rode really maturely. I thought again, you know, sat on the wheel of Remco Evenepoel all day. You know, knew yeah. what he was doing, knew what he was trying to do. And an interesting rider with an interesting approach. I mean, part of it is just the aesthetics. And aesthetically on a bike, Ben Healy does look like a bit of a throwback. Um, he's quite crouched over the bike. He sort of rides a you know modern bike the way guys used to look, I think, in the sort of 70s. I may have said this already a couple of weeks ago, but he reminds me a bit of Franco Bitossi and rider from the late 60s, early 70s. Just the way, you know, sort of dark hair, jet black hair in Bitossi's case, sort of crouched over the handlebars. There's a bit of Dan, I mean, there's a bit of Dan Martin in the way talks um and the irish nationality um but there's also a bit of dan martin about the way he sort of sits on the bike maybe we might have the opportunity to ask dan about this in coming days lionel also just the way he has or has not reacted to the attacks of the pogachars and avonapool he's come back up or he's dealt with them in his own way at his own speed and it's clearly not a, a lack of strength that dictates he, you know, he's not immediately on the wheel um, in the same way that Pidcock was today. After six hours, um, you know, at Amstel, it was at the in the last 10, 15 kilometers of that race. And today, again, to look 
pretty much the strongest guy in the race behind the winner. I know that he was soundly beaten in the sprint today, but that's a, a real weakness of Ben Healy's that I suspect, and I think he says he will always have. But at his age to be so strong in such long races is really, really impressive. What about Jan Tratnik then? Another outstanding ride. He's had a disrupted spring, crashed at Milan San Remo. Hasn't raced, I don't think, since Milan San Remo. Yeah, I mean, their strategy looked as though it was to sort of, well, anticipate. He went on the, was it the van? or the, no, Ortleve, he went on the Ortleve. In an effort, it seemed to sort of anticipate maybe a move from Sudar Quickstep. They maybe thought that the race was going to be blown apart and, you know, he would therefore have a bit of a head start. But I was going to ask you, what do you make of um, the way sort of Jumbo Visma as, I think, the undisputed number one team in the world, certainly that's what everyone was really agreeing on a few weeks ago, the way they've sort of abdicated in the... Arden Classic this week but in the sense that Vingegaard's not there Roglic isn't there mm. you know they, they've gone obviously with ambitions for other riders Benoit and Walter and you know some of these guys yeah they have to give them opportunities of sort of sweeteners to keep them on board because some of these guys are good enough to be leaders elsewhere so if you're going to if you want them to sacrifice themselves for Vingard and Roglic in the major tours, you have to say, well, okay, you've got this big race that we'll get behind you in. However, it has looked a, a little bit meek just in terms of the selection, hasn't it? Just, you know, when you think we are talking about some of the biggest one-day races of the year, we're talking about monuments, effectively, or a monument today, and they come in with sort of mid-tier ambitions. Yeah, I mean, obviously very unlucky with the two COVID cases, which meant they only started with five. But you're right, it's the it's the, the gaps in the team sheet that you notice, isn't it? No Van Aert, no Vingegaard, no Roglic. I mean, three potential winners of Liège-Bastogne-Liège uh, any time. But they did race. You know, Tratnik, mm. I thought, was exceptional. That really bodes well for Roglic at the Giro, I think, because he's going to be absolutely crucial. I mean, he's a, he's a machine on those climbs. Um, he made... Well, as I say, it took him 20 kilometres to ride across that gap, um, which was not inconsiderable given the terrain. Uh, Benut is a strong rider, a diesel, but always going to be difficult for him to uh, win a race like Liège-Bastogne-Liège with, with the finish unless he can get away on his own and they just didn't get into a position. The curious one for me was Attila Valter, who was, you know, visible, um, there was a moment where he was waving away the motorbike, wasn't he? Traffic and, uh, policeman, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah, when Tratnik was up the road. and uh, uh, But he's kind of, uh, you know, he's, he's mercurial, isn't he? I, I don't want to say flaky, but he's kind of like a magician's rabbit. He's there one minute, then he's not, and, and then he's back again. Uh, but not necessarily doing the same sorts of things that Louis Viveca was doing for Sudar Quickstep or Lawrence de Plus was trying to do for Ineos Grenadiers. He was... he's. Uh, like, yeah, I was struggling to see what the strategy was. It was like a, a team of individuals rather than, you know, knowing, right, this is what they're riding for. And I suspect maybe that's the, that's the difficulty they have when the, they've got a rider with Benut's class, but with no finish. So that tactically makes it difficult. I suspect they were hoping that Tratnik would uh, be able to stay up there a bit longer. Um, but in the end, everything got Evnepool, didn't it? The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. 
Lionel, any other unsung heroes of the day? I mean, uh, are we still doing the Castellet Prize? What was the ca- the Castellet Prize? Sort of unsung hero, wasn't it? Best ride that wasn't a victory. No, no, no the Castellet Prize best. started out as the most impressive kind of all round performance. Had to have okay. a bit of everything. It couldn't just oh, be. Okay. It couldn't just be panache. It had to be panache and sort of grit. You know. Oh, uh, okay. but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to. Okay. We'll have to think about that. No beans and sausage and, and tripe and, and no tripe, Daniel. Come off it. Come off it. We're not. We're there not. is some tripe in Castle, isn't there? No, well, I don't, possibly. Is there is, possibly. There's certainly. It depends some. which one. There are three. We, 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 you and I, I think privately, we've had a discussion about this. I think you did a kilometer zero about it. There are three different. There's a sort of holy trinity of Castle. It varies mm. from place to place, doesn't it? Anyway, that's for another episode isn't it, it certainly is because that cassoulet episode has not yet seen the light of day i'm waiting oh, for okay. the tour to get back into cassoulet oh, okay. country but w- okay. one day one day no, okay other other things to mention i thought yeah trek were kind of there looking very very alert very lively with uh skill Musa and chicone they look look, look good well and, and molimer's move was potentially really Ooh. well timed because that was the moment at which Remco was starting to look low on manpower because it looked as though Vecca was was burnt, was a burnt match, and he only had Van Vilder there, and it looked as though at one point, obviously Molimo is a dangerous rider, that Remco was going to have to chase that on his own because of, obviously with Pogaccio having crashed, the expectation had been that there would be two teams that would share the sort of controlling duties, and that without Pogaccio in the race was no longer the case. Um, however... Viveka, as you said, Lionel, he sort of came back from the dead. And that was also, that was a key point in the race where Sudal, Quickstep, those sort of 15 kilometers before La Redoux, where they really kept a lid on things. And that was absolutely vital. And just lastly, Simone Velasco of Astana. What a ride from him. He was in the break for 218 kilometers, the last man standing with... Uh, with Tratnik, wasn't he? And uh, still had the strength to finish, where was it now? 19th place, just two minutes 13 down on the winner. Uh, so really only, only a minute or so behind the kind of the, you know, the, the riders uh, from the, the you know, the, the what was left of the peloton, if you take Evnepoel out of it. Uh, Simone Velasco from Elba, the island of Elba, just off Tuscany, um, he was exiled to the breakaway in the same way that Napoleon was exiled to Elba <laughs> in 1814 today. <laughs> Before we go, Daniel, there was also the women's edition of Liège, Baston-Liège today. No spoilers, of course, but there's a separate Arrivé episode hosted by Rose Manley and Lizzie Banks. It's on the feed now, so if you want to hear their analysis of the women's race, you know where to find it. We'll be back in midweek. Yeah, we've got lots coming. The Giro preparations are starting to crank up, aren't they, Lionel? Um, More about that in the coming days. Keep an eye out on the podcast feeds and also social media as well. We'll be telling you what we'll be getting up to at the Giro. Um, Lionel, just thinking about Giro, just before we go, I've found myself thinking about you know that opening time trial in in the Giro in Abruzzo and the very very high likelihood of Remco Evenepoel being in pink at the end of the first day and what that might mean for the race uh, I think I personally think he'll beat Filippo Ganna if, if Ganna rides which we expect him to at the Giro over 19 kilometers and um, yeah that will set up a really interesting next three weeks 
Well, Abruzzo just makes me think of uh, Arrostacini. And, uh, well, there was, a, there was a controversy a few years ago, wasn't there, during our Giro. Let's not revisit that. But it's, uh, it's Sunday evening here. It's time for my roast dinner. And uh, we shall be back in midweek with a very special guest, won't we? We will. Thanks, Lionel. Thanks, Daniel. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.